Hello and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of February 28th, 2018. My name's Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'll be your host as always. And I am joined by my two co-podcasters. We're back together again, all on the line at the same time. First up, we've got Chris Herring in Chicago. Hey, Chris. Hey, Neil. What's going on, man? How you doing? You've been away from the show. How was vacation? Vacation was was nice. I was still trying to... I, w- I was in Singapore and in Indonesia, but I was trying to keep up with the All-Star game, which you know I was expecting to kind of just tune out, but... I tuned in for the last quarter of it. It looked like it was fun. Uh, the The dunk contest looked pretty lame, but the All-Star game itself looked really fun. Yeah, and uh, of course, also in studio, we have our fellow 538 sports writer, Kyle Wagner, here with us. Hey, Kyle. Hey, man. How you doing? I've, I've shaken my long-standing colds uh, just in time to move into allergy season. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I was going to ask. Uh, you, you look a little uh, swollen uh, today, uh, so I was going to ask whether you uh, either got into a fist fight or uh, allergies were hitting you. Uh, the fist fight by the name of uh, Ruby. There's a new cat in the apartment. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, it's a big mistake. <laughs> Wow. Uh, so uh, on today's show, we'll we'll kind of give Kyle a little bit of a rest from fighting off uh, allergies to animals, and we'll talk about some NBA, uh, especially this season's unparalleled tank-off. These teams are allergic to winning uh, at the bottom of the NBA standings, and, and, and have we seen anything like this before, uh, and what can the league potentially do about it? Is there anything to do about it? Uh, we'll also bring you a significant digit about Anthony Davis's recent insane hot streak that he's on. Uh, But first, let's talk about Jimmy Butler's injury, uh, which happened on Friday, and how it affects the T-Wolves' resurgent season to this point. The Minnesota Timberwolves are, of course, on track to make the playoffs for the first time since 2004. We talked about that number uh, a few episodes ago. It still seems crazy to me. Uh, And their breakout year was going pretty smoothly until Friday night when all-star wingman Jimmy Butler planted awkwardly after grabbing a rebound against the Rockets and fell to the court, clutching his knee. Butler was later diagnosed with a torn right meniscus and underwent surgery to repair it over the weekend, so he's been ruled out indefinitely. Uh, And he told confidants he was optimistic about coming back before the playoffs begin, but right now we don't really know when he's going to come back and what kind of shape he's going to be in when he comes back. So first things first, guys, how important has Butler been to this resurgent Minnesota team this season? It seems like he's been their most valuable player, or at least their co-most valuable player. I mean, he's been really, really core, especially since they, they didn't start as you know well as they've looked um, in the last um, you know, few months. And like, so, so the big stat is for me, like, and you can pick these endpoints wherever you want to put them, but over the first uh, few weeks, the first 25 games, uh, he had like a 23% usage rate. Since then, it's gone up to 27. And that's a, that's a minor shift, but a real one, because that's the shift of him playing with Derrick Rose and without Derrick Rose while he was on the Bulls. And in that time, like, he's gone from a 55 to a 61 true shooting percentage, or whatever. But, like, you can really tell when he's, like, more engaged, when he's, you know, just demanding the ball and, like, not, like, kind of deferring to, to Wig and to, to Towns, um, and also to Teague, who Teague's been great this season, we'll get to. Um, like, he's, he's driving more, just like he's, He's the the kind of the cutting edge on in that offense uh, when it's really really working. So he was just now kind of getting into his stride on this new team. It sounds like you're you're saying. Yeah. So um, like after a slow start, you know, just getting acquainted with the team and in the, the lineups. Uh, like after a slower start or just like kind of an okay start, like he's really come on and been like everything they were hoping to be. They they're really really gonna miss him. I mean, I I keep thinking about it this way. I'm happy they have the cushion they do as far as seating goes. Just because if they'd been a little bit worse to start the season, 
I'm not sure I would feel that great about their playoff chances. That's how important he is to that team. Towns has had a really nice season, especially since the first month or two. He's picked it up on defense. But look at their numbers when Butler's off the court. I actually think the difference is a lot more stark when he's not there defensively. So when you look at Towns, Wiggins, and Butler on the court together, their defensive efficiency is something like 104 points per 100 possessions. When you take Butler off the court but then leave those other two guys on the floor, it goes up to 127. That's awful. I mean, that, that, that's really kind of otherworldly when we're talking about how bad that is. Um, and that's just defensively. And so that that's a huge shift. And I think a big part of that, obviously, is Wiggins having to guard the best guy on the floor on the wing. And we've talked several times before Kyle's written about how Wiggins, you know, he's made slight improvements defensively this season. A lot of that's probably because he's guarding less lesser offensive players. But that is a big shift by itself, not even to mention the idea that when they lost Teague, that Butler took over a lot of those point guard responsibilities, not even to mention the fact that Butler's basically been, again, one of the two or three best players in the clutch this season in terms of clutch scoring. They're going to miss him uh, immensely uh, over the, the end of the season, but you just hope that you get him back healthy for the playoffs because they are probably going to make the playoffs. And the other thing is this team seems like it really can't even afford to kind of dip into whatever depth it has. Uh, I was looking at some stats from NBA Advanced Stats, and uh, according to that, the Wolves have the league's fourth-best efficiency differential with at least one starter on the court, but has the seventh-worst uh, efficiency differential with no starters on the court. So it's something I think we talked about when we did a segment on the T-Wolves uh about a month ago, where this team just is all about the starters and doesn't seem to have much in the way of depth, and that seems pretty customary for a Tom Thibodeau club, where he basically relies on the starters for more minutes per game than any other team in the league, and that can work, but if you lose one of those starters, especially someone as important as Butler, the plan really goes off the rails pretty fast. It also, it's important which starters also, because the rotations are really set with uh, with that Thibodeau um system to where like Jamal Crawford has been like really good as you know in the traditional we've talked about this before the traditional Tom Thibodeau you know combo guard you know goes and lights it up um but like just to go back to to talking about Wig uh Wiggins has been bad on both ends at times like he's he's shown minor improvements on defense but like on offense um it's like really really stark and with Butler out um like that's something that like is apparently like going to be a bigger thing like we saw just on monday like he got locked up by the kings like of all teams to to lock you up and so like th- over the course of the season when butler's off the co- uh when he plays with butler wiggins uh his usage is like 20 21 uh it shoots up to 27 when butler's off the court and that is a problem because if you look at the numbers like when when andrew wiggins drives to the hoop um, on shots created on those things uh the team scores about 89 points per 100 chances uh which is really really bad um, and he does that a, kind of a lot. When Teague or Jimmy Butler, which are, you know, the other two who do that a lot, Teague creates, uh, at a really high rate of 105 points per 100 possessions. Butler's up at 108. Like, that is a massive, massive fall off. Um, on the offense, like let alone like whatever whatever hell's gonna like happen on the defensive end. So is this kind of gonna be a referendum on Wiggins and that kind of max deal that he signed, where now he really is gonna be put in a position where he has to deliver on kind of all of the expectations of what that confers, including being the number one guy on offense and maybe also playing better on defense at the same time, just being that kind of all around wing that he hasn't really shown many signs of that he's capable of being. I mean, like. 
frankly, like they have to hope that it's not that, that it's not like a big referendum on him, that he can kind of slide into a role and let Jeff Teague and, you know, Towns and like Jamal Crawford, who's played really well this season, uh, kind of run that offense and like not seed it over to just a bunch of, you know, wig, you know, on the right wing, just kind of trying to make it happen and driving into three guys who literally like his his shot is so unreliable that like I'm just watching these things. Defenders run away from him as he's driving like they they drop so far that like it's like they're just like trying to just race him to the basket, not just try to stop the ball because they know that like the pass isn't going to, you know, hurt them that much. Like somehow, like even passing out of uh, drives like his his numbers are also really low, which everyone else on the team is really high. It's uh, the way he's defended is really bizarre um, and not really like a lot of other players are. I, I would love to see them lean more heavily on Towns here if they could, and and even Teague to some extent. And Teague has kind of stepped up offensively these last couple games and taken more slack from, from the rest of the offense. But Wiggins, I know that's going to be his instinct to kind of pick up where stuff has left off, but he's just not – there's not enough extra efficiency there, at least when you take – Butler off the floor. So you look at it, he turns the ball over um, a time or two more per 36 minutes. And he's just, he's only scoring two or three points more per 36 minutes with Butler off the floor. And that's just not enough efficiency for how many extra shots he's taking. I I just worry about it. And I don't, it is a little bit of a small referendum here. I mean, it's, he's still so young that he could obviously progress into something more, but he's being asked to do so much more. It's what he was doing last year without Butler, but it seemed like you, you had a better trade-off with Butler there because you know Butler can take over and do it by himself if he has to. We haven't seen the same thing from Wiggins yet, at least not to a point where they can win that way. And I just think that it, it might be a rude awakening asking him to go back into that role that he had last year because it was cute before when you weren't competing for a playoff spot, but now when you are, um, it you know especially with how tight these teams are in the West, it could really throw off their seating if they don't win anywhere near the same level they were before. Now, is this something, Kyle? Uh, you you wrote a little bit about this. Is this something that we could have seen coming uh, at the All Star break? You had a little roundup of teams uh, that were in contention, and you talked about how the Wolves basically needed to reduce Butler's workload anyway because he was averaging thirty nine minutes per game in the ga- games leading into the All Star break. He had traveled the third most miles per game of any player in the league and had the sixth highest load, which is this metric at Second Spectrum for basically physical stress that you're putting on your body by accelerating and decelerating so they were really putting maybe a lot of injury potential on him the way they were using him even going into this right right and this is always the the question with the tom thibodeau teams of like it does he ride his players too hard especially his stars he plays a lot of minutes uh he's asked to to do a lot just on his defensive assignments on the help he gives on like the way that he you know carries the offense and like players like in the modern nba who are asked to do all those things, like typically don't play those minutes and not just those minutes, but, um, in, sp- in individual games, like he'll play like 43, 45 minutes, um, in one night. And like that is rare these days for, for a player. And like it's hard to draw like a, ca- the causality line of like, this is definitely beca- because of the other thing, but, um, it is, it's one more in the line of like, well, this is a Tom Thibodeau team and this is a star playing heavy minutes, um, in a, in a major, major role. So, so yeah. Yeah. I know, I know I've alluded to it at least one other time on this podcast, but, um, that still sticks with me. You know, I, I live in Chicago now. I grew up a Bulls fan, so I still probably pay more attention to them. Um, even not being a fan now, just pay more attention to them than I do with most other teams because they're local to me. 
Um, Thibodeau has always kind of, you know, I, I've always felt it's a little unfair that he gets blamed for the injury stuff, but he's, he leans into it so heavily. And even with as much as he claims to have studied it, he seems to, you know, he's kind of an example of someone that studies stuff and knows more about it than most people, but still takes the contrarian view on it, where if he can find guys that are willing to play every game, he'd rather have that. And so when I went to their training camp and went to talk to him and asked him about this sort of thing and whether or not, you know, he kind of learned from last year with Zach Levine and learned from Derrick Rose and everybody else, all these injuries, are you going to kind of shy away from playing guys as much? And he said, you know, well, you know, I, I don't think it was a result of how much they were being played that they got hurt. But what we went out and did this summer, we went out and signed as many guys as we could that had played all 82 games last year to show that, you know, these are guys that can do it. And, you know, so Tosh Gibson was one guy he cited. Uh, Butler was not an example of someone that did that. But he likes guys that are willing to go out and play every game that don't want nights off, it, it, almost as if to show that he can do that and he can play them and that they can take it. And so I, I don't like the fact that he continues to play him this much, especially given that, you know, even I think two or three nights ago against the Bulls, they were up by 20 points with two minutes to go, and they still had their starters in the game. And so it's just it's just a habit. It's just the way he was taught. It's just the way he likes to coach. But I do think he overdoes it, and I do think that, you know, whether or not it had a role in this injury or not, it does catch up with guys eventually. And it's also the, that willingness is a big part of this because, you know, a lot of, you know, players are just going to be like, oh, yeah, I'll take the rest. I'll take the, I'll take the day. I'll take, you know, a shorter, shorter run. Um, and Butler's obviously not a guy like that. He totally buys into the Thibodeau way, but it was really conspicuous at All-Stars. So like, uh, Jimmy Butler took a lot of heat for, you know, not playing in the All-Star game. He was just like, look, man, he's tired. But like, that happens every year. Like, uh, Boogie a couple years ago was just like, yeah, man, like, uh, whatever, came out, played two minutes, went back on the bench. Uh, like this happens. That was because they traded him, though. <laughs> was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it might have been because they traded. But like, there's there's always a guy who just you know has short run and like you know talks to the sure. coach early. So it's just like zero minutes is like yeah, that doesn't usually happen. But like, there's always a guy who plays like three, four, five minutes, and like it's because he's tapped the coach on the shoulder. Sure. What was conspicuous though was I was out there is he didn't practice either. And an all star practice isn't a real practice. There's this guy screwing around like just doing whatever, and like Jimmy Butler's over there not and. Uh, so it came out after where you know, someone talked to someone close to Butler, and they were just like, "Don't, don't worry. He's just, he's just tired. It's you know a long season." That's meant to be reassuring, but in the context of an All Star game practice, like you don't even want to go do that. Uh, so yeah, he might be willing to do it, but like that's clear that like there's there's a physical toll being taken on Butler, like even if he's willing to be out there. Okay, let's leave the T Wolves there. We'll keep an eye on them as they try to uh, hold on to that playoff position without Jimmy Butler over the rest of the regular season. Uh, and let's move on and talk about this year's epic race to the bottom of the NBA standings. It's the home stretch of the 2018 regular season, and the NBA is settling in for what Deadspin's Patrick Redford referred to as the tanking campaign of a lifetime. As we speak, eight teams are currently within two and a half games of the league's worst record, with the tail-spinning New York Knicks gaining ground on that quickly. They've lost 10 of their last 11, and they're currently only six games out of last place. Uh, as part of this, Mavs owner Mark Cuban, uh, because Dallas is one of the eight teams that uh, is in that group, uh, he was recently fined for admitting that his team was basically better off losing losing games, uh, and it's clear that the Dallas Mavericks are not the only ones who realize this. So guys, even in a league that's known for tanking uh, among all the major sports leagues, this is, seems to be something on just another level from what we usually see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of a bunch of things uh, where 
in the last few seasons, like the Warriors obviously have, you know, kind of locked down the league where a lot of teams have thrown their their window of like where they think they can, you know, plausibly contend or, you know, whatever forward uh, if they're you know not in position to get three or four all stars. Um, another thing is that there's so much dead money for the first time um, in a long time where teams are incentivized to take on contracts to, you know, make deals to, you know, kind of. Uh, grease the skids for for other teams, you know, making moves because for the first time in a while, like expiring contracts and you know just cap room are valuable in a way that they weren't maybe two, three, four years ago. Um, and so, like, there's a consolidation of you know just bad assets on one team, like to throw that into the future. And also, teams are just really tightly bunched um, in talent, even you know from top to bottom. Uh, so you look at the other end, and this is uh, Jeff McDonald just around the All Star break um, in the San Antonio Express News. Um, talking about just the Spurs were close to 10th, and they were third at the time. Uh, so behind the fourth-place Timberwolves are a logjam of five teams with 26 losses, including the Clippers. Um, had the Spurs dropped three more games before the All-Star break, they'd be in 10th. Wow, so just, from third, they from dropped third. down to 10th. So just th- three losses is all that separates that at the at the other end of the spectrum also. And so in a league where uh, just kind of everyone's really tightly bunched, like, yeah, it makes sense that at the bottom of the league that would be true also. Yeah, I, I honestly think, Part of it, I mean, yes, you've got a ton of teams tanking. I don't think there's any secret about that. We've written at 538 about the idea that tanking is starting earlier and earlier each year. And the truth is you actually had some teams that were decent or started decently this season that then kind of made an executive decision that, all right, we, you know, enough is enough. Uh, particularly, you know, my hometown here, Chicago, the Bulls, had they not started the season as horribly as they had, you remember they went on a 10-game losing streak and then followed that up with a seven-game win streak. They kind of eventually said, we're winning too much. And even to come out of the All-Star break, start benching Robin Lopez, start benching, who's a starter, start benching Justin Holiday, basically because they make a decision that they don't want to win anymore. So they bench two starters that are totally healthy to start the second half of the season that's clearly tanking. Maybe it's not coming right out like Mark Cuban and saying it, but that's tanking. And, you know, it reminds me of what the Suns did last year where they started benching guys extremely early that were healthy. And I think it kind of bled into the season, literally bled with Bledsoe, bled into the season where guys basically weren't willing to play hard as a result of it uh, the, the following year. But that's the thing is that you can kind of control and you can accelerate the tanking by just sitting guys out. And so I think you've had more teams actively deciding to do that much, much earlier in the season, which you see it has an effect on wins and losses a lot earlier. And it kind of bunches all these teams together. It almost reminds me of a race or something, maybe a long uh, 5,000 meter or something where you run and everybody's kind of bunched up until the very end and then you get really extreme. All the teams are getting really extreme with it really early. And so they're all bunched up. Right, like they started their kick like about 500 meters exactly. like earlier than they usually and do. So that, that's kind of what this reminds me of. I don't necessarily think that the teams are that much worse on paper, but I think that they're making themselves that much worse by benching the guys that on paper would help them win. Yeah, just for a little context, I went back to 1990, uh, which was the first year that they put in place the current sort of weighted lottery instead of the envelope and the various other ways that they did it before then. Uh, and I tried to find how many teams were within two and a half games of the worst record in the league on February 28th of, of a given season. So I threw out 2012 and 99 because they weren't full seasons. And 2018 has eight teams, like we mentioned before, within two and a half games. That's easily the most of any season 
season. 1991 had six teams within two and a half games of last place. And then it goes down to 2002 and 2009 with four teams apiece within two and a half games. So really, you're seeing basically double uh, the, the number of teams that are that close to the worst record in the league as there were, you know, in, say, 2009 or, or uh, almost triple the number from 2015. Uh, and I think that really does take a toll. And maybe that is like you you alluded to, Chris. Maybe it's not only the, the usual suspects of teams that start the season and kind of deliberately go into the season knowing they're not going to be good, but also this idea of almost like situational tanking where you know, maybe you have a team that can go either way, and if things break right, they might make a run at the playoffs, and you're comfortable doing that if you want to. But you also have in the back pocket the option of if things go south, you know, early in the season, you just sell off everything that's not uh, bolted down, and you take that tanking mode almost like situationally uh, based on what happens early in the season, uh, and and that could just add to the usual number and, and lead to what we're seeing with this huge number that we have this season. I will on the on the other end of that, um, like because that's like a staggering stat, um, is that there aren't teams that are uh, just so abysmal this season. Like even even the Suns, who look like they might never win a game uh, for a while, like have somehow put together eighteen wins. Yeah, and they have the worst record, right? Right. And so like there's this thing where so on the one hand there are a bunch of teams like bunched up and like very close to this worst record, but in a way that's like it's tough to be uh close to like a team like the Sixers that one year where they just like. What, what, I forget like the the exact number that they won, which is it's hard to be within two and a half games of that. But um, if the floor is is pretty high on relatively speaking, at least for the worst team in the league, um, it's again like they're all kind of bunched up of like the same kind of level of miserableness. <laughs> Yeah, and we should also mention that um, this might not be completely coincidental that it's happening this year because next season a rule change goes into place that basically flatten, flattens the lottery odds for teams with the worst records in the league. So this is sort of the last shot if you're going to try to gun for the worst record and try to get that 25% chance. It's going to be a lot lower if you're the worst starting next year. And it's a pretty deep draft class also that's coming up uh, this summer. And so maybe, you know incrementally each of these things sort of adds on to the incentive to be bad like absolutely i think that's uh a thing especially with the teams that you know have their own pick this season and whatever else uh which you know leads some teams like what are the nets doing how are they still in this (laughs) thing um but i mean that also like throws into the question like the old lottery system or like the one that we're still under of like how does it make sense if these teams are all so closely bunched like even in a world where you throw out the idea of tanking like let's just assume that these teams are all just like kind of in good faith this bad and they're all this closely bunched how does it make sense that one team would have odds so much better of getting one of those top three picks a top the number one overall pick than a team that it's going to finish like a game and a half ahead of uh like it doesn't actually make sense like even if you just uh break it down into like the the basic underlying logic of it yeah, I I think it goes back to what Neil was saying, where I don't necessarily know there's any one thing. If any one thing is influencing it, I think it's that the draft class is expected to be really good. But aside from that, I don't I don't think necessarily that the odds next year flattening out are changing the strategy. Maybe a little bit, maybe for one team here or there. But I think for the most part, the teams that are bad now, that are really horrible now, are probably expecting to not be very good next year too. And so they're going to get another crack at this. I, I think more than anything, it's just, you know, it's a lot of teams look at it. And like Kyle said, the the Warriors aren't going anywhere. Even if it's not the Warriors, the Rockets look really, really good, which, you know, we could have had a whole segment about just them again. 
and how dominant they've been. Um, you know, if you're not going to win a title and you're not anywhere near winning a title, you might as well kind of go for it on the other end of the spectrum. And I think that's what we're seeing. Just a lot of teams that see that as a good opportunity with how deep a draft class this is. Now, Kyle, you and I have uh, talked about this for a number of years about how tanking doesn't even really even make sense. Like, even if you take it on face value before, you know, some of these rule changes come into place and before you consider the way in which now you're, instead of fighting off like three or four teams for that worst record, you're one of eight teams that, that are vying for it. Even then, it didn't really ever make sense that much as a, as a viable way to, you know, build a championship team, at least not if you didn't want to completely alienate a entire fan base for a whole generation uh, while only boosting your odds of getting a superstar, maybe somewhat, but not a huge amount. Right. It always made sense on like the very most basic terms of the process or whatever you want to call it. Like, yes, you have a better shot of drafting an incredibly good player with a very high pick. Um, and that is, uh, that's obvious. Uh, it's, so it's, it's never been like as complex of a thing of let's play the long game. No, no, of course that's how it works. That's how you like win an NBA 2K. Uh, yes, but like there are externalities that are like present in building an NBA team and an NBA culture that aren't, uh, like the same way. So like Chris mentioned in Phoenix, where if you tank for so long, there's eventually going to be a thing like where your culture is just not one of winning. Same thing in Philly. Like we're near whatever of the process and we finally have a healthy season out of uh, Embiid and Simmons. They look great. They have uh, role players for the first time that they look like a real team. And it took them a six game winning streak, seven game winning streak, whatever it was to just get back into like, you know, looking like they're probably going to make the playoffs or whatever. So even once you get the superstars, you've kind of contaminated the trajectory of the team in other like external ways that, yeah, like you're still like, even if everything goes right and like everything that you hope goes right does, uh, then you still have like all this other stuff to climb over that you wouldn't if you had just, you know, tried to, you know, hit one of those uh, late second round picks, uh, late lottery picks, like draft a Giannis, drafting a Giannis with a bunch of shots in the middle of the draft is about the same as like just trying to, you know, get uh, a Joel, Allen, Joel Embiid at, at, you know, the top end in one draft or two drafts or whatever else. That That's a pretty bold um, opinion. I mean, I, I, I'm not totally sure I agree with it. Maybe it is true. I've, I've definitely never run the numbers on it, but you've got to you've got to be pretty good at drafting, I think, to and confident um, that you can find one. And you know, because it's like it'd be like the person going to the beach with the metal detector of trying to find some sort of gold or silver or something like that in the sand, uh, finding somebody with Giannis's upside that's that good, that talented, um, and, and also developing the amount of skill that he has. Um, even if you had 10 shots at it to find somebody like that, to have the scouting that's overseas. Um, I don't know how many draft picks it would take someone to kind of land upon someone as talented as Giannis. But, I mean, tanking, in Philly's case, I, I have no doubt that it will end up having been worth it. Um, I think fans are already, for the most part, ones that hated what they were doing have already come around to the idea that you know that it's worth it because of the upside that they look like they have. The, the, how much fun they're having as a team. Maybe they're just really thirsty for a good team after all that time. But it's it's risky. I think it becomes riskier when you've got this many teams that are trying to do it this openly. Uh, and for the record, I will just say it. I, I think it's ridiculous, by the way, that um, you know the difference between saying that you're tanking and actually just tanking. 
Um, the idea that the the Mavs, with everything that's going on with them and how serious some of those accusations that were leveled, and that Sports Illustrated story that Mark Cuban and the the Mavs get fined six hundred thousand for basically coming out and saying what everybody already knows, something that he's hinted at several times in the past, and something that teams are literally sitting out healthy starters to start a second half of a season that you know there's no fine for them, and it, it's just a silly system. And I you know I think the NBA will make some strides to try to figure out how to kind of eradicate it, but you're never going to be able to get rid of it entirely, not by flattening the odds as little as they did last year. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys, among all of the tanking solutions that are always perpetually floating around out there, and it seems like everyone has their sort of pet uh, plan to fix tanking, uh, have you guys seen or heard any of them that sort of appealed to you or, or made you think, oh, this is the this is the way that a, uh, at least the NBA could start moving uh, and try to eliminate some of the misguided incentives that the current system has? Or are they all just sort of it's an it's an impossible solution? Uh, it's an impossible problem to get a solution for. They're all arbitrary enough that I feel like just at a certain point lead into it. Uh, to where so like there's the wheel uh, example which uh, that's Mike Zarin like, yeah, yeah. Uh, had written about a while ago and um, like there there are all these examples that like either are totally arbitrary and random or they they use the the previous season standings in some kind of way that some, sometimes they're you know overvalued or undervalued or you know uh, somewhere in between but in every case it's just random of just like take the bad teams give them a shot at the the good players um, or just give everyone an equal shot but it is random and so I say I say. Just lean into it being random and shoot for captains. Take take the lottery, uh, take the lottery teams, put them in a line, and just just make them shoot for it. And like whoever you know, you know hits all their shots in the in the free throw lane, uh, just they get the first pick. Then the Warriors would just have the first pick. Oh no, no, it's 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 a non play. The lot the lottery okay, teams. Okay, okay. Yeah, make Vladi Divots and like Scott Perry and them just line them up. Shoot oh, make shots. the actual GMs take yes, shots. Yes, okay, there yes. we go. Now we're talking. <laughs> um, my radical idea here. Why not just get rid of the draft and you, you make it an open system? Uh, some teams, you know, you, you obviously have to have some sort of cap in place. Um, but, you know, you have teams. Cleveland was one of the few teams last year that lost a lot of money in the league, in part because they have such high luxury taxes. If you've got a really, really desperate team, uh, you know, obviously you have the Stepien rule in place now to avoid teams – trading their picks away in consecutive years and screwing themselves over like the Cavs did years ago, like the Knicks probably would have done had they not had that rule in place. Um, I mean, why not just make a team, you know, offer a pick or, you know, the best player to the highest bidder. If they're really, really desperate, they kind of have to do it to try to find their franchise player. The best teams are already capped out to a point where they can't really afford to do that anyway. You know, maybe that balances out the system too. A small market team has to have a, a lottery player to really build around and a good one. And that way you kind of limit the risk a little bit, at least you would think, by getting a bona fide top player or top two player in the draft. You know, you take the scouting out of their hands a little bit in the sense that maybe if a team is really horrible at scouting, that they draft a can't miss guy like the LeBron or someone like that. And you kind of help level things out that way. So I, you know, I've wondered that for a while. We we lean so heavily on the draft. It, it's obviously not scientific. Certain teams are good at it. Certain teams are not. Um, and you know, and obviously the lottery system is not um, good in the sense that teams tank and do what they're doing this year. 
and kind of mess it up anyway. So, you know, I've wondered for a while, why not do something more along those lines of just letting a team buy the pick and pay whatever they want for it? Right. And so, I mean, yes, at arrest, the, the, the draft itself is, you know, immoral and un-American. But so is the, the kind of corollary that's attached onto that in uh, the last, you know, decade or a uh, few decades, uh, the rookie scale, which, uh, like, it basically, like, this is exactly what Chris is talking about, where uh, having cap room, having whatever, in order to pay your first pick, like in baseball, you have to be able to sign the first pick um, if you take it. Um, is just not an option anymore either. And like, it would, it's a thing where it would kind of work itself out where the Warriors can't afford to pay, uh, like a lot more for like a rookie coming in, uh, because they're capped out. They, they might have to, you know, give up some of their core players and teams further down the way, uh, would, you know, be able to, unless you're the New York Knicks in, you know, the mid 2000s and have the highest payroll in the league and, you know, we're still winning 20. Aside from that, uh, it's a, it's a system that like kind of would, uh, you know, sort itself out naturally, but teams didn't like, you know, having to negotiate with Jawan Howard on, you know, equal terms. Right. It's kind of funny that for all of the fixes that are proposed and even ones that they're entertaining, like maybe the, the in-season tournament seems to be gaining traction. I think I saw some stories about that with the league, which had the old Bill Simmons idea uh, of having all the non-playoff teams play each other basically for draft position. Nobody is really willing to take that step that you mentioned. Both of you mentioned the idea of just why even have the draft in the first place? Why not make that and build that into part of the system? Uh, and, and that would require really radically uh, reshaping and overhauling the economics of the NBA in a way that probably the owners don't want to uh, and and would also sort of change the way that we think about things. But I think unless you get rid of the draft entirely, you're going to have to figure out the order for it somehow. And you're going to have to have this tug of war between balancing anti-tanking measures against this idea that, oh, well, the worst teams deserve the, the first picks in, in the name of competitive balance going forward that's always going to be a problem as long as you have a draft system and so you know i'm kind of with you guys that maybe the best and most radical solution to the draft is just to not have a draft i think the biggest problem with it you know kyle brought up the rookie scale um first of all i'm not totally confident that a team as messed up as the knicks have been would handle it well enough to really benefit from that system anyway. Oh, they would handle it horribly. We they know would this. handle it horribly. <laughs> and so you, you look at it. Um, first of all, they, they've been capped out in a lot of years where they missed the playoffs anyway. And so they wouldn't even have the money to go get a draft pick, a, a, a really top-level draft pick. One. Two, I think the bigger problem is I don't necessarily know that you want teams, particularly smaller market teams. Yes, you want them to be able to get big stars and, you know, uh, Anthony Davis is probably a good example of that ending up in New Orleans, for instance. But you let, let's say that that was a situation where everybody knew he was the can't-miss prospect from that class, which everyone did, and because of it, he went to the highest bidder. So New Orleans bids everything they have on him, and then all of a sudden, they're pretty close to being capped out pretty soon, too, because they just spent everything they had on him. And as a result of that, whereas you normally have a rookie-scale system where Davis, you get Davis on you know, a reasonable contract for four years, if not seven years, and then get a chance to build around him over that time, you would be paying him, you know, who knows, maybe close to a max salary or something like that early on. And then all of a sudden he's not easy to build around. And you still find yourself in a position where you kind of are on a bridge to nowhere. All of a sudden you bridge to nowhere with a star, but you're still on a bridge to nowhere because you can't build around him properly. So it, it still has problems. It wouldn't be perfect, but it there probably are some things that could be taken from that idea that do make sense just in the sense of not 
not tying it to how competitive these teams were the year before. Because the truth is, if you're the front office and you're under pressure anyway, you're going to be looking for ways to improve the team quickly. And you probably should give teams a remedy to, to do that quicker as opposed to making them build four or five, six years out. Right. And like the other thing with that is that rookie scale is part of the collective bargaining agreement and it ben- and it benefits the players who are actually in the union and voting on these things. The veteran players. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, you know, kind of uh, depress the, the salary of incoming players who like they have no vote in it because they're not part of the unit yet. And so why would uh, like the players in the league vote to take money away from the players in the league and give it to players who are not yet in the league? Uh, like that's just probably not going to happen. Um so and and without that, then like if everyone can you know offer the same set amount of of money like two and a half million dollars, four million dollars, whatever, for uh, four or five million dollars, what first uh, number one pick gets at this point, uh, Warriors can afford that. Um, and so like it's it's really hard to uh, to to balance if there isn't the the scaling uh, involved with an actual like free market type system. Yeah, it seems difficult to to make everyone happy or even content under uh, all of these different competing aims that teams have. I, sh- I should also remind longtime listeners uh, to our previous podcast, Hot Takedown. We actually had a contest uh, where people would send in their best ideas for fixing uh, the draft and and fixing tanking. And uh, one of the ideas which we had made into a T-shirt was the idea that Adam. Silver should ride a bear uh, into a pool of fish, and each fish is attached to uh, a team. The teams come with with the fish that they've chosen, and then whichever fish the bear eats, that's who gets the number one pick. And and if the bear eats Adam Silver, then it, then the draft order reverts uh, to uh, the order of of record. Uh, well, how do we freeze the Knicks fish? Uh, yeah, that's right. Sure you the, have uh, to make sure uh, that that they get the next Patrick Ewing with a frozen we, fish. So. We have too many readers and listeners who <laughs> watch Chronicles of Narnia over and over again, clearly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true, among uh, other things that they watch. Okay, so let's wrap things up there on the draft and uh, close out the episode with a segment that we like to call Significant Digits. Okay, this is the time of the show where we bring you a number from around the league that caught our eye during the week. Maybe it's an emerging trend. Maybe it's just noise. Maybe it's just interesting to us. This week's significant digits are 41.5 and 15. That is the number of points and rebounds per game, respectively, that Anthony Davis of the Pelicans is averaging over his last six games. Uh, not coincidentally, that happens to be a six-game winning streak for New Orleans that has the Pelicans shooting up the standings from being on the verge of missing the playoffs a few weeks ago, especially after they lost. Boogie Cousins to injury. Now they're in sixth place in the West and rising. Uh, guys, we talked a little bit after DeMarcus Cousins was lost for the season and sort of what it meant for the Pelicans that it would probably require a superhuman performance from Davis for them to even be relevant over the rest of the season. And I guess this is that performance that we're talking about. I mean, the the thing is, first of all, Davis has been incredible. Um, and I, I said a couple years ago, probably a little too early on this, that I thought actually a year or two ago that um, that year that they made the playoffs that basically that when he came back that next year that I expected him to be become the best player in the NBA over the next year or two he hasn't done that necessarily but I mean this week this last week has I've seen people that I kind of uh, respect on Twitter asking has he kind of joined the top three player conversation which I don't necessarily know if that's the case. I think people are very quick to kind of count out Steph. Uh, I think most people say LeBron and Durant, and then Steph maybe is third. Um, but, I mean, I, I think these sorts of performances and 
kind of taking a team that would be really, really, really pedestrian, probably right in the thick of that tanking conversation if it weren't for Davis. Um, and sometimes I think even if Davis weren't on the team and if it was Cousins, let's say he was healthy with the rest of these players, that they would probably be in that tanking conversation as well. Um, Davis is that good that I, I think he could kind of will this team into the playoffs. Um, they're also not in the playoffs by any means, you know, solidly right now because of how tight the West is. But he's done a lot of it. I've seen other things that, you know, they've kind of done as a team that uh, Rondo has played really well, actually, the last few games. I think over his last 10, he's shooting closer to 50%. He's shooting 40% from three. He's averaging 10 and 10 in terms of points and assists. He's played pretty well. Uh, Holiday seems to have settled in a little bit more as well. My question in all of this, it's a crazy one, and it's probably a little too early to ask it, if they make the playoffs, and let's say they actually continue to win at this clip, not six games in a row, but let's say they win four out of their next five and kind of stay on that clip for the rest of the season. If they finish with the four or the five seed all of a sudden in the West, would you consider not bringing back Boogie because of how Davis looked with this group for the rest of the season, or is that a crazy thought? You know, you'd probably be bringing Boogie yeah. back. It was a, a foregone conclusion that you do it, and maybe you even get him on a better deal than you would have otherwise because of his injury. Do you consider now the idea if Davis plays this well by himself that maybe it's better off to just have him there as opposed to having him and Boogie? Yeah, Cousins, we, uh, we like you just alluded to, is a free agent after the season uh, despite the injury, and we spoke about how, yeah, maybe you know he'll most likely kind of go back to the Pelicans, but Kyle, what do you think about that potential, that they've seen what maybe this team can be uh, if they break up the Boogie and AD show? No? Mm. Not buying? So, I mean... If uh, if Anthony Davis is going to go out and average like forty one and fifteen, then like yes, then like, basically yeah, yeah, yeah. become Will okay, Chamberlain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, I'm I'm then I am on board. But like so so the quote that he gave to Rachel Nichols over the uh, over the All Star break was that he was going to go out and you know play like Russ in you know the season after Durant left, and yeah, like there is there is a thrill to seeing a player max out, um, especially you know, like over short stretches that are like prolonged, like. Kobe scoring like 40 points in a row, like six games in a row or whatever else that was. And just like throwing up like 40, 50, 60, like several times a year. Like that's really fun. That's really fun. Uh, they didn't make the playoffs that year, the Lakers. Like it's going to be like really interesting to see, you know, what AD can throw up, the stat lines he can, you know, give us and like just like thrilling individual performances. But like there's only but so far that that's going to go. And so, yeah, like if, he is like going to perform at this clip like sure or something like it um but like banking on your power forward who's out of position at center like even if you bring in Miritich and Miritich is not being good for them um and like even if that's so and like he doesn't like playing center but like he's he's succeeding so maybe like we'll convince him to uh just banking on just this level of performance uh or something even approximating it uh, like does doesn't work out for me. This is not a long term solution. Like they've got to get something like this from from Davis. Like wow, Boogie's on the team. But like one of the most impressive things about uh, Davis over this run, uh, not just that like he has uh, you know been putting up all these counting stats and you know all the efficiency, whatever else, but that the efficiency has been so good while taking on all these things that Boogie was already doing for them, like all these possessions, all these uh, all these shots that typically like if you take on like all that workload you're going to fall off. Uh, but, like, trusting that, like, you're going to, like, buck the, the efficiency curve on that stuff over a long period, uh, like, just seems like a bad bet to me. I, I mean, the other part of it, too, I, I think I was just raising the question to kind of start a conversation. I, 
there are a couple things to keep in mind. One, Anthony Davis's injury history is a lot longer than Boogie's is. No, he hasn't had – I don't think Davis has had surgery yet, but he gets hurt. I've, I've, I've tweeted several times this year, like, Anthony Davis is probably the player that makes me want to turn injuries off the most – you know, of, of the modern stars. Um, because I feel like every five or six games when I watch them play, every fourth or fifth game I watch of his, he's on the court and he's kind of down on the ground. And you're worried that he's got a really serious injury. He has, he did miss the end of one season, I think, because of one injury. So no, he hasn't had surgery, but he's constantly kind of an injury risk. Um, so we don't know that he would hold up well as the lone guy. Two, and I think this is the bigger problem, I'm pretty sure the Pelicans are still capped out. And so this is kind of the the quandary that a lot of teams find themselves in. If you've got a, a player that is good, I don't even think they have to be a star player, but just a good player, they kind of found themselves in this, uh, this situation with Drew Holiday this past summer where they broke the bank for him. Uh, if you're going to lose a guy and you can't really replace him with anything monetarily because you're capped out, what what's the upside there? You either get the guy or you don't, but if you don't bring him back, you're not able to replace him with anything else because of where you are cap-wise. And so I, I don't think there's any chance at all that the Pelicans decide to just walk away completely from Boogie uh, when he's there and if they think that he'll be healthy, reasonably healthy, coming back out of this injury. The only thing I, I guess I could see maybe is maybe Boogie wanting to sign um, – you know, an extension or, or, or staying with them, uh, signing a new contract to stay with them, and maybe them signing and trading him somewhere. But I don't think a team would be readily willing to do that. Uh, you know, Boogie would want the money, and so maybe he could stay with them and then he could go somewhere else. But I don't think another team would be willing to give up a whole lot to do that um, if they couldn't just sign him outright. And even then, I still think they might want to sign him, um, you know, on a prove-it sort of contract or something. Because it's he's a big guy and he's coming off a ruptured Achilles, so I don't I don't think it's really in anyone's best interest to kind of walk away from the other side here. I think the Pelicans are likely to keep him and to pay him what it takes to do that. All right, so that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to the show, Chris. It was great having you back. Uh, our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson, as usual. Our podcast commissioners, Chad Matlin. Please keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. I promise we'll do another mailbag episode sooner or later. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are there, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Wherever you find the program, be sure to review and rate the show. It can help others discover it, too. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.